The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawkbox. Oil prices jump to a two-year high as OPEC and its allies decide to stick to a gradual increase in production. 23 countries, and I mean even Iran, are in our comfort zone to make that decision. And that this decision was actually voted unanimously. Pandemic reopening stocks kick off the month with strong gains after the long weekend in the US, but Wall Street ends the session flat with investors waiting for key jobs data later in the week. Digital currencies are the way forward. Russia's central bank governor tells CNBC in an exclusive interview touting the need for fast, cheap payment systems. It's the future for, for our financial system because it correlates with this uh, development of uh, digital economy, digital finances. The World Health Organization grants China's Sinovac COVID vaccine emergency approval, boosting the COVAX program's bid to distribute jabs to poor countries. The EU signs off on a tax transparency bill, which has been years in the making to target large multinational companies. But some MEPs warn it won't be enough to curb tax avoidance. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Let's kick off then by focusing on this energy story. OPEC and its allies have now agreed to maintain the pace of easing supply curbs, citing stronger demand in key markets like China and the United States, thanks to the global vaccine rollout. At a virtual meeting, the group backed a plan to raise output in July following increases in May and June. They also predicted an orderly return of Iranian crude, despite concerns over a production spike if the country is able to reach a new nuclear deal with Washington. There were ramifications for the market. Energy, one of the big drivers for the markets, in particular the S&P 500. At one point, we were trading around some of the record levels for the major market, but we peeled off that, as you can see, by the close on the S&P 500. Other factors at play too, not just the oil story. A little bit of data to get through. And was the manufacturing numbers, the ISM, that the market responded to very quickly. We saw a ramp up uh, in the numbers, 61.2% in May from 607 in April. But then investors quickly started to stew about some of the bottlenecks in the labour market and in the supply chain. And that just saw investors then start to cast their eye out a little bit further to data coming out on Friday in the form of the non-farm payrolls report. So as a result, it was a choppy old set despite that big boost from energy. We can take a look at that sector and you can see how it played out for the S&P Energy Index. The rally near on 4%, now year-to-date 41.5% pop. So very strong component as we talk about the markets. The reopening theme, they were very strong. This is one area, but airlines also taking part, some big banking stocks, but uh, still inflation concerns on the other side, which is why you saw that weakness of the technology basket. And let me take you from the Energy Index to what you're seeing on some of the, the 
the oil trades. WTI and Brent this morning, 67.81 we were trading. We've uh, nudged up another tenth of a percent and a little bit more on Brent as we are settling above this 70, 70 mark, 70.37 on the ticket this morning, Jeff. Yeah, I think what's interesting about this move is that they've actually just stuck to a pre-agreed escalator in terms of supply. And I think that's going to generate a lot of criticism because with oil prices around $70 a barrel, everybody, I think, acknowledges that this risks the nascent recovery we're seeing from the pandemic lockdowns. So should they have gone bigger, will they be be accused at this point of profiteering from these higher prices and perpetuating what's perceived to be a mismatch in supply and demand fundamentals at the moment? Uh, Dan, of course, has been all over the story for us. And uh, Dan, uh, just give us your thoughts on that issue, because they did have an opportunity here to break out of that pre-planned escalator. That's exactly right, Jeff. Karen, good morning to you both. Look, can you blame them? The economies of the Gulf have been in crisis as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, and it's very clear that they would like to see higher oil prices as they navigate their way through this recovery. Ultimately, when you look at the outcome of the OPEC Plus meeting overnight, it finished up in record time, a conclusion in less than 30 minutes. This is unheard of in the world of OPEC Plus. And this meeting ultimately delivered a result that the market largely expected. As you've been laying out, we saw OPEC Plus moving to essentially increase supplies over the next two months, giving the market more clarity on what the production side is going to look like. And at the same time, digging into some of the details of the commentary that we heard from the Saudi energy minister, it's also very clear that these ministers are very encouraged by the demand recovery that we are seeing. At the same time, the market also continues to show signs of strength. Oil prices hitting a two-year high off the back of this, with Brent actually touching 71 US dollars a barrel in the session yesterday, and now up around 40% YTD. In terms of some of the other things that ministers have pointed to, well, first, they're also eyeing this demand surge in the second half of the year. Now, The verdict is still out on exactly what that looks like with obvious concerns around the coronavirus still lingering in the market. But OPEC does expect large stock drawdowns in H2. At the same time, though, officials also conceding that there are clouds on the horizon. And one of the main concerns here is what happens with Iran. Yes, while the market has more clarity now around what OPEC is going to do over the next two months, we didn't get much insight on what they plan to do after July. And that's because deliberations around the JCPOA in Vienna, the United States, world powers and Iran attempting to come together to sign this new nuclear deal, essentially hitting somewhat of a logjam ahead of the Iranian elections, means that ministers held off on making any major moves when it comes to the supply side, instead waiting to see exactly how many Iranian barrels are going to come back to this market. Now, when you look at Iran, the progress of those nuclear talks has essentially stalled somewhat. Uh, What we could see is those US sanctions being lifted and Iranian supply hitting the market. But as I pointed out before, we don't know how much Iranian uh, supply is going to come back. The Iranian energy minister says up to six and a half million barrels per day could be coming back. But that seems like quite a lofty assessment at this point. So during the OPEC press conference last night, I asked the Saudi energy minister whether or not the group would be willing to compensate for those additional Iranian barrels coming back to the market. And I also asked him, what's your message to analysts, to speculators, when they're talking about this new Iranian supply? Here's how he responded. We want to give the market the assurance 
and the comfort that we will continue to be attentive and uh, uh, monitoring, uh, continuously monitoring the situation. And uh, we would not leave this market uh, uh, exposed to, to any lack of uh, uh, attendance. One of the other things that the energy minister was very keen to point out is the fact that OPEC Plus maintains this flexibility of decision making and its policy by holding these monthly meetings, essentially giving them a chance to review the oil market every single month and also the opportunity to review the supply and demand fundamentals. So the next meeting is going to take place on July 1. That will, of course, after be after uh, we learn the outcome of the Iranian elections, perhaps by then, We'll have some more insight on exactly how much Iranian supply could come back. Also, more insight on what's happening with the global economic recovery and how the demand fundamentals are also shaping up. But I would just finish by saying that it seems nothing that was said overnight would derail the momentum that we're seeing in the oil market right now with Brent lingering at around a two-year high, guys. Back over to you. Brilliant, Dan. Thanks so much for setting out the story for us. Let's bring in uh, Hamayoun Falakshahi, oil and gas analyst at Kepler. Um, good to see you this morning. Look, the path of these increases was laid out back in April. Since then, as Dan has pointed out, oil prices have extended their rally beyond perhaps even the wildest expectations of the Secretary General, Mr Barkindo. Given that, was this a missed opportunity to show the world that OPEC understands higher prices could kill this recovery? Uh, hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, no, I think as, as your colleague said, I mean, uh, can you actually blame OPEC? Uh, if I were OPEC, I would rather have prices overshoot uh, for, for even a short period of time and then maybe come back to, to more normal level, what you would consider at no, more normal levels, rather than have the country happening. Uh, so I think OPEC Plus has been doing the right thing. I think they've been doing the right thing for, for months now. And actually, um, uh, we, we believe that uh, under Prince Abdulaziz's uh, management, uh, there, uh, the fact that the meetings are taking place right now in uh, on a monthly basis really allows them to have that kind of flexibility. And just if you imagine that prices either crash or, or overshoot in the next 30 days, then they'd be able to actually react in a timely manner uh, in less than 30 days. So I think that gives them the flexibility to do so. But let's not also forget that when you when you look at exports, the, the picture could be different. We've actually seen exports from the OPEC plus group, excluding Iran and Venezuela, decrease by almost 400,000 barrels per day last month. And that's also due to uh, stronger internal demand. And that's going to, to be even more accentuated by the fact that you get higher power generation needs uh, in, in countries such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And part of their electricity is also, also comes from, from uh, fuel oil and, and sometimes crude oil directly. I mean, you, the point that Dan made was uh, uh, the Gulf economies have been badly hit by the pandemic. And it was a point that you reiterated and just that justifies uh, perhaps uh, the running hot for a while of uh, uh, oil prices. Um, what then is the price at which you think OPEC may go back and reconsider the current agreement? Does it have to be $80 a barrel, $90 a barrel? Do we have to get to $100 a barrel before OPEC considers it's time to revisit? I mean, if you look at it from a 
purely OPEC plus side, obviously the higher higher prices, uh, the better, because that means more revenues for for your own state. Now we are we're in a market where there's other factors to take into account. I think one of the biggest one that OPEC plus will take into account when it comes to that question is uh, when should when do we see higher capex, big capex increases especially uh, in in the US and in the shale sector in the US. Uh, so the last the latest set of earnings and results from US shale companies have shown that so far they're showing uh, extremely strong um, uh, uh, sorry resilience but also capital discipline. Uh, there's just a few of them such as continental resources and has have announced capex increases. But I think that as soon as you reach maybe 80 90 uh, or $100, then you'd have more of that. Uh, and so I think this is the point where OPEC Plus should say, okay, so maybe we've gone a bit too far now, and maybe we need the market to cool down a little bit so that we don't see that competition coming back very strongly. Can we talk about the Iranian oil supply? Because the wobble that we witnessed on the markets early last month was down to some early expectations that we may have to contend with some of that Iranian oil supply coming into the broader market if sanctions are lifted. A lot of ifs and whens and buts around an Iranian nuclear oil deal. But uh, what we've got on the markets is still, uh, I guess, a level of uh, concern in some quarters balanced against OPEC Plus saying there are no concerns about that Iranian oil supply. How do you judge it, what would be the implications of just how quickly Iran can bring that supply back into some of the, the key customer markets? I think to an extent the response from OPEC Plus is sensible from yesterday. And that's because, uh, okay, so it's true, if, if there's a nuclear deal, new nuclear deal that is signed, for sure you're going to see more Iranian barrels come back on the market. But at the same time, if you're having uh, energy demand, oil demand picking up very strongly. So we expect oil demand to, to boost by about 5 million barrels per day between now and the end of the year. Looking at Iranian supply, what we've seen so far since the month of January are levels, export levels of around 720,000 barrels per day. So that's more than double what we've seen uh, back in 2020 on average. Um, and looking at the, the potential for, from, from when a new nuclear deal is going to be signed, we think that it's going to be 1.7 million barrels per day over the course of six to nine months, of which you'd have about 1.4 million barrels per day of crude and about 300,000 barrels per day of condensate. So looking at that potential new supply, again, 1.7 million, million barrels per day over the course of, of six to nine months, you know, it's not going to come back overnight. We're not talking about five to 10 million barrels per day coming back overnight on the market. Um, and the fact that at the same time you have that energy demand picking up, uh, I think means that the market will probably be able to absorb this, given the fact that, again, even if you include that all that new supply, you, you still have a big supply gap to fill that uh, oil demand that, that that is going to pick up uh, between now and the end of the year, uh, unless you know some, 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 uh, some other unexpected things happen again. Fingers crossed at this point around the vaccine rollout, but that does take me to the United States and what the reaction might be there from this OPEC plus decision. Uh, we've got a lot of shale producers in the Permian and beyond, also a place where they're witnessing what uh, the, the vaccine rollout looks like firsthand. What do you think those uh, shale producers are likely to do at this point with the higher price and this <coughs> OPEC decision? Um, you know, we're in a, we're in a market uh, which works in cycles and normally uh, companies, when prices go down, they say, okay, so next time prices go up, we maintain our capital discipline, and then the next time 
prices go up, they, they start uh, overspending again. Um, so that is going to be the key question here for U.S. share companies. I think uh, for now, investors have got the keys. And that's because a lot of, for example, private equity companies uh, are trying to exit the sector or, or at least are not interested in it anymore. Um, so I think that it's going to be interesting to see the, the reaction in the equities as soon as we start seeing a new capital expenditure increases being announced. Um, and I think that is going to be one of the keys for to, to see how much U.S. supply is going to come back. Uh, this year and next year. So far this year in 2021, we were relatively conservative on new U.S. supply compared to last to last year. Uh, we see about 300 kbd increase uh, over the year. Uh, although that there would be one million barrels per day uh, from December to December from the U.S. But that, but that supply again is going to be just part of the supply that is going to be uh, filling uh, that uh, demand gap uh, as Iran and OPEC plus also will take a role in this. We've got to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us with your perspective. Uh, Hamyun Falakshahi, oil and gas analyst at Kepler. We've got some news crossing from Amazon. Exciting big event for the diary. Jeff uh, Prime Day event has been declared and it will be the 21st and 22nd of June. So effectively going early again for a second year in a row. Typically it's a July event, but it was brought forward last year. Now again this year. So from about um, midnight on the 21st of June, uh, the marketing event begins. Uh, third party merchants, of course, represent about 60% of sales on Amazon. They will also be taking part in this event uh, that will stretch on until just before midnight on June 22nd. It starts to get controversial when you talk about the disruption to the high street. If you think about it through the lens of Europe, uh, France has been debating when to hold its big discounting event and whether to push it out until about the 30th of June, which would be after Amazon stages its, its event. And you've got to say Amazon's strategy here is to, to get in there, try and get as many sales ticking over as possible before people hit the shops and lockdowns, restrictions, you know, when they've been lifted, that's all had a, a dramatic impact on the sales event that Amazon stages. So do, do you see, can see the motivation I mean, look, here. There are, there are plenty of days available to you to go out and buy things if you want to buy things. Um, do, we, do we have to do Amazon's bidding for them and promote their prime day? Other retailers are available, of course, and are fighting back very aggressively, particularly if you're interested in books, let me say. Yeah, I think that's one of the points, though. We all waited out, in a sense, if you know that there's a big discounting window around the corner, whether that's from Amazon or every, any other high street retailer that where you may be searching for some merchandise. And the strategy from Amazon has not just been one about market share. It's also been a very aggressive marketing strategy to go early, go hard and try and get some of that spend up front. At this point, doesn't matter. We keep talking about built up savings and people ready to spend on whatever platform anyway when they see the right bargain. Or is Amazon going to try and clean up uh, some of that uh, disposable income first before others get a chance to? And I think that's probably one of the keys this year. Will Amazon get some of that money first up before all other places. And I think for me, it's France. That has been the interesting timing where they really are trying to get it right on, on when to open up from lockdowns and restrictions to get the sales happening because they don't, of course, want to, to spur any uh, increase in the virus right on the, the travel season over summer. Mm. They, they want to postpone that as, for as long as possible. But then that gives advantages to Amazon where it can distribute without people interacting uh, with the discount, of course. It's a, it's a, it's a funny... Um idea, isn't it? That we, we focus here on Amazon having its Prime Day sale. Um, I'd like to hear actually from Amazon on the new EU tax bill 
maybe they'd like to put out a press release about that this morning because I'm much more interested in learning how Amazon is going to negotiate these new transparency regulations from the EU that argue that companies like this with revenue in excess of 750 million euros should now transparently document in very easily understood language exactly how many products they're selling for how much in which EU markets and how much tax they're ultimately paying on those sales. That would be more interesting reading for me, I suspect, at this point. You've the surface on a later discussion. I think uh, the French might have a very similar idea, given that all the pushback against the so-called gaffer, as they call them, the companies uh, from Silicon Valley, they do not think of paying the right amount of tax in their country. Okay, let's take the break. We'll be back in just a moment. Russia's central bank governor, Elvira Nabiolina, wades into the digital currency discussion. We have an exclusive interview with Hadley. That's coming up in just a moment. And for more on the impact of OPEC's latest decision, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has held virtual talks with China's Vice Premier Liu He for the first time since President Biden took office, discussing the economic recovery and areas where the two countries can cooperate. A Treasury Department statement added that the two also frankly tackled issues of concern. The talks come days after Liu He spoke to the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai for the first time. Dogecoin prices are climbing following an announcement by the cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase that it will allow its premium users to trade the digital asset from Thursday. However, the company says the rollout will be staggered and that it will keep a close eye on its order book to assess whether the market is healthy or if it needs to intervene. The Dogecoin is up some 7,000% year-to-date, but it is also around 50% off its peak. Russia's central bank governor, Elvira Nabiolina, says digital ruble trials will begin in 2022. The trial will operate in a tiered scheme with the central bank opening wallets to store digital rubles for commercial banks. Private banks and institutions will also be part of the pilot program. Speaking to our colleague Hadley Gamble, Nebulina said digital coins will be part of the future of our economies, but there needs to be collaboration across borders. We discussed with our businesses, with people, society, if there is a need in such uh, central bank uh, uh, currency. Because our financial system is quite developed in the technological point of view, for example, fast payment system, online banking, they are very developed in Russia. But we see some advantages. Of course, there are some risks, and we decided to create this prototype of uh, uh, digital ruble. We aim to have this prototype, uh, technological prototype, by the end of this year. And next year, we uh, we aim to start testing, piloting, 
um, different groups or different types of uh, operations, uh, this uh, digital rubble. But we think that we will go step by step because it's very difficult, technological, legal, and so on project. But I think it's the future for, for our financial system because it correlates with this uh, development of uh, digital economy, digital finances. And, uh, I think there is need for such fast, cheap payment for, for all. Absolutely. When it diminishes all these transactional costs in the economy. Walk me through how you see the greatest challenge for central banks globally when dealing with this new phenomenon, which is crypto. I think uh, we see now many banks, a lot of banks uh, think about this digital currency, uh, central bank digital currency, but we need to think about cross-border uh, payments because if each bank creates own system, technological systems with local standards, it will be very difficult to create some um, interconnections between these systems to facilitate all cross-border payments. So that needs to be a conversation between yeah, central yeah. banks. Globally. There are these conversations, but I think it's difficult to, um, to find um, the common solutions on that. When you think about that with regards to um, what President Putin has called the criminal elements that use crypto. Um, do you think that central banks are doing enough to ensure that there's security in line with what you're doing in Russia? No, but the, the, I think that these cryptocurrencies uh, provide a great risk for this money laundering because it's, um, uh, it's created on an anonymous basis. It's non-transparent. You said about volatility. Volatility, it's about financial uh, issues, about the protection of uh, people's investment. But there are aspects related to this um, transparency. Uh, that's why we banned our financial institutions to work with cryptocurrencies. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.